In the last episode, I taught about the first part of Genesis chapter 3, in which we saw the methods used by the serpent to tempt Eve. There is so much rich content in chapter 3 that affects principles throughout the Bible. So this week, we're going to finish chapter 3. What did God do in his role as judge? How did he blend consequences with hope? Join me as we dive deeper into Genesis chapter 3. If you missed last week's lesson about the temptation of Eve, you may want to go back and watch it first. We examined verses 1 through 6, showing how the serpent tempted Eve by twisting the word of God, and by appealing to the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Eve was also tempted by the idea of being a God and knowing good and evil, or being like a God. I like what Watchman Nee says in his book, Spiritual Authority. By taking the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve found a source of right and wrong other than God himself. The folly of the fall is that now people think they know better than God and can distinguish good and evil from what is right or wrong. But, Nee says, man's action should not be governed by the knowledge of good or evil. It should be motivated by a sense of obedience. The fall of Adam and Eve was due to disobedience to God's authority and actually Eve disobeyed two levels of authority over her, God's and Adam's. Based on the sequence of headship, God, then Adam, then Eve, she had two levels of authority to obey. And by disobeying Adam, who was God's representative authority in her life, she disobeyed God. So today we're going to talk more about the consequences of the rebellion. There is so much to cover in the Bible because it's rich with meaning. So throughout this lesson, I'm probably going to keep saying that's something for another lesson uh, because there's just too much to cover. Uh, So for today, I'll just address what I think are some of the key highlights of finishing chapter three. And then let me know in the comments section if you want me to dive deeper into something in particular. So the remainder of chapter three is in three parts. The first part is Adam and Eve hiding from God. The second part is the pronouncements of God. And the third part is God providing a new covering for Adam and Eve. Plus then there's a section with an epilogue. So in verse seven, their eyes were opened. They had more knowledge and awareness, but it was distorted. In a sense, it opened up mankind's desire to have ethical autonomy and to decide right and wrong for themselves. This opened up people pursuing their own chosen ethical guidelines instead of living according to God's. Now, Adam and Eve realized that they were naked, so they created a covering for themselves from fig leaves. So right away, we see the result of spiritual death by some level of alienation and separation from each other and also from God by hiding from him. 
In verse 8, they heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves. The Hebrew word that is sometimes translated as cool is ruach, which means wind or spirit. It also means breath. So it's a reinforcement of God's presence as literally the wind or the spirit of the day. Now, they couldn't even face God because of the guilt of their transgression. So they avoided and, in a sense, sh- in a sense, shunned him. I like how one author says that the gardener, meaning God, had not abandoned his garden. The proof of his love was his unwillingness to abandon the object of his love. In verse 9, God called out to Adam and asked him where he was. Now, since God is all-knowing, he already knew the answer, so it was a rhetorical question. But this is an example of God giving a chance to repent. And he models justice by investigating the details before passing judgment. In verse 10, Adam responded by saying that he heard God's voice in the garden and was afraid because he was naked, so he hid himself. Now, the concept of nakedness and covering is very important theologically, so it will probably be a discussion for a future episode. But I do want to briefly mention about the fear of the Lord. We are supposed to fear the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's because all knowledge, wisdom, and understanding are ultimately rooted in God. It's impossible to encapsulate the fear of the Lord into one definition because it has several nuances, but it includes the ideas of respect, like a servant would give respect to the master, It includes reverence and awe because of God's unlimited power, holiness, and glory. And also the fear has a sense of trembling because his majesty is beyond what we can comprehend. This kind of fear is a healthy fear, and it actually draws us closer to God based on love, respect, and reverence, and a sincere desire to obey him and to please him. So think back to Proverbs 1-7, which says that fools despise wisdom. Adam and Eve were guilty of trying to obtain wisdom apart from God, which we know can't be done because true wisdom only comes from God. And now in verse 10, Adam admitted that he was afraid, but this was the kind of fear resulting from feeling guilt and shame. And this type of fear is very different. When we're doing right, God's glory and majesty should make us want to fall down and worship him. But when we're doing wrong, there's a tendency like Adam to feel the type of fear that makes you want to run and hide. In verse 11, God asked Adam who told him he was naked, and he asked him if he had eaten from the tree that God had commanded that he not eat from. Now, in the original Hebrew, the word order puts emphasis on the tree by placing it first, And God says, from the tree that I commanded you not to eat, from it have you eaten. In English, we would say, have you eaten from the tree? And that would be acceptable in Hebrew as well. But God placed emphasis on the tree by mentioning it first. And God again offered Adam an opportunity to take responsibility and repent. This teaches the theological principle that someone who has sinned 
must confess to God. But Adam responded by blaming the woman and indirectly by blaming God as well, because he said to God, it was the woman that you gave to me. She gave it to me and I ate it. So Adam ultimately confessed in the last line, but first he cast blame at Eve. Now, when you're caught red-handed and you deflect the blame to someone else, that's a good example of throwing someone under the bus. And we talked in a previous episode about why Adam ate from the fruit. He wasn't beguiled like Eve. He hadn't been tricked by the serpent. Was he tempted by it? Or was he blindly following Eve's example? Following instead of leading? Or perhaps did he eat of it intentionally because he didn't want Eve to suffer the consequences alone? Now, personally, I'm not sure which one is correct, but if Adam truly cared about protecting Eve and maybe even buffering her from the consequences, then it does seem strange to me that he would point the blame directly at her. So he, he could have said, but didn't say, she ate of it before I could stop her, so I ate of it too, because whatever happens to her, I want to be with her. Instead, he blamed the woman to God, not knowing what the repercussions would be. And then he blamed God by saying to God that she was the woman you gave me. And in my mind, that's pretty risky to blame Eve since you don't know what the consequences will be yet. And also to throw some blame at your creator as if this is partly his fault. Well, Adam's comment elicited, I think, the reaction that he wanted from God because God then understandably turned his attention to Eve and he asked her, what is this that thou hast done? In the Hebrew, it's worded in a very emphatic way. It actually has the force of saying something more like, what in the world have you done? And like Adam, Eve did not repent. She did finally confess, but only after she placed blame on the serpent. So both Adam and Eve confessed, but they really didn't take responsibility. Now, Eve said that the serpent beguiled her, and this fits what we know of Satan because he is a deceiver. And this is such a pivotal moment in the story. From creation to this point in the Bible, God has been the creator and the sustainer. But this is the first time that we're going to see God in the role of judge. And God declares punishments. I want you to notice that these are not commandments to be obeyed, but they are more like declarations of what life will be like. I also want to point out something very important. These pronouncements are not simply curses. In fact, the Hebrew word for curse is only used in relation to the serpent and the earth. God does not curse Adam and Eve. In verses 14 and 15, God addressed the serpent first, but God did not seek a confession from him. He didn't even ask him any questions because he already knew the answer. So there was no interrogation of the serpent. And the serpent, who up till now had had lots to say, had stayed silent from the moment that God had entered the scene. 
So God said directly to the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There are several points to unpack from these verses. First, the Hebrew word for seed, zerah, can refer to an immediate descendant, a distant offspring, or a large group of descendants. And in this particular text, we can definitely see the singular and the collective senses. The woman's seed, meaning her descendants, struggle against the serpent's seed. But there is also one particular seed, meaning Jesus Christ, who will deliver the fatal blow. Now, there is a question about the seed of the serpent, and some argue that it refers to demons who follow Satan. However, Satan doesn't literally father demons, so others suggest that the seed are humans who follow Satan in rebelling against God. And in this sense, if that's the correct interpretation, people are either in God's family or they are the seed of Satan by being in rebellion to God in his kingdom. And if it is the second definition, that would help explain John 8, in which Jesus said to a group of Jews, you belong to your father, the devil. Second, it's really important to note in this section of judgment that the word cursed, which I mentioned before, it's only used with the serpent and with earth. Adam and Eve were judged and they faced consequences, but they weren't cursed. Third, we talked in the previous episode about how verse 15 is pivotal theologically. It is really verse 15 that lets us know for sure that the serpent is more than he seems and that he is Satan. The consequences in verse 14 is directed to the serpent, but the consequence in verse 15 is cosmic. It is the pronouncement of a perpetual conflict between good and evil until the seed of the woman triumphs. The first Adam failed, but the second Adam, Jesus Christ, will prevail. Also, there is parallelism in verse 16 because both will be bruised. There will be a struggle and suffering. We usually think of this in relation to Jesus, but if believers consider ourselves we, that we are part of that collective seed of the woman and we're on the side of God, then we will also face struggles and even suffering. In verse 16, God addressed the woman and said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. I think in God's original design, it's appropriate to think of Adam's role in relation to Eve as a leader. But the alienation that has now come into the relationship from the fall means that man will dominate the woman and that there would be power struggles between the two. And this is another area. This male-female relationship is another great topic for a future study because there's so much to delve into. 
Now, after giving Eve her consequence, God returned his attention to Adam and said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now this is very ironic. The ground from which the man came, and that was intended to serve him, became his enemy. Adam was supposed to rule over it, but the ground would now resist him instead of submitting to him. And there are other ironies in this portion of text dealing with judgment. One is that Adam and Eve, by blaming one another, used their speech, which should have bound them together. Instead, they used it to alienate themselves from each other. Also, the woman who was supposed to be a helper became a hindrance. And Adam said that he was afraid and hid from God because he heard him. In Hebrew, the word to hear also means to obey, so it, it has a dual connotation. And again, that's a whole lesson for another time. But ironically, Adam heard God in the garden and hid, but he was in this situation precisely because he didn't really hear or obey God initially. Who did he hearken to? He hearkened to Eve instead of to God. And another irony is that the serpent's punishment is appropriate in a sort of poetic justice. The animal who was more crafty than any other now becomes the most cursed. So now we'll move to the third section of this chapter, which is kind of like an epilogue. In verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve, which is Chava in Hebrew, and it means life. Similar to many personal names in Hebrew, the name indicates someone's role or their destiny. Eve would become the mother of all humans. And it's also interesting to think about Adam naming Eve before she ever had children. It does seem to show that Adam believed God's promise, and so he named Eve accordingly. In verse 21, God made coats of skins and clothed Adam and Eve. Now, this is another verse that is very heavy with theological relevance. Um, they tried to cover their shame, but only God can truly provide a covering. And this act of covering, which would have involved the killing of an animal because it was uh, the covering was of animal skins, it provides the basis for the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice, that an animal could be sacrificed in place of a person to satisfy the requirement of death for sin, at least temporarily until the one true fulfilling sacrifice would be made by Jesus Christ. So God made the sacrifice here for Adam and Eve as a type of the future sacrifice he would later make at Calvary. Now, verse 22 is very interesting. God spoke to someone saying, 
Behold, the man has become as one of us, knowing good and evil. And a discussion of the us and who that is is an area of scholarly debate and beyond the scope of our conversation here. Uh, so what I want to focus on is about uh, realizing that now good and evil were known. Prior to the rebellion, only good was known. But now that evil was known, God did not want Adam and Eve to be able to eat from the tree of life and to live forever in this fallen state. So God sent Adam forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground. And in the final verse of this chapter, verse 24, God placed cherubims and a flaming sword to keep people from the tree of life. God did not want them to live forever in their sinful condition. And with cherubim guarding the way to the tree of life, it would only be accessible on God's terms. So now that we've reviewed the content of the verses 7 through 24, I want to mention a couple of interesting points about the structure of this section. First, in verse 7, Adam and Eve clothed themselves. And in verse 21, near the end of the chapter, God clothed them. So this creates a nice framework called an inclusio, which is a literary device in which similar contents at the beginning and then at the ending of a section. So it creates a type of bookend or envelope. So at the beginning and at the end of this section, we have the principle of clothing. Also within this portion of scripture, we have a chiasm, which is an intentional structure of the text in which the second half is like a mere image of the first. For example, a chiasm could be a, B, C, B, A. And then C becomes a pivotal part because it's in the middle of the chiasm. Within chapter three, we can see a deliberate five-part chiastic structure. First is the Lord's interrogation of the man in verses nine through 12. Then there's the interrogation of the woman in verse 13. Then God makes a pronouncement or oracle to the serpent in verses 14 and 15 then to the woman in verse 16, and then back to the man in verses 17 to 19. So the chiastic structure is man, woman, serpent, woman, man. The center of the arrangement is the serpent, and the writer is intentionally positioning the pronouncement to the serpent as central because it's the basis of the cosmic battle of good and evil. So there's a very thoughtful structure to this portion of scripture that intentionally highlights the covering through the use of inclusio and also highlights the cosmic battle through the chiastic organization of the material. Genesis chapter three provides so many foundational principles and concepts that are core to the rest of the Bible and are also relevant for today. Some examples are that sin causes alienation from God. It causes a distortion of the appropriate fear of the Lord, and it causes alienation between husbands and wives. There is a power struggle between men and women. People will experience hardship and suffer. People will attempt to establish their own morality apart from God. And most of all, God is a righteous judge. And in the midst of judgment, there is always a promise of hope. And the hope of redemption 
comes through Jesus Christ. I want to end on a brief note about a comparison of Adam and Jesus. Jesus is known as the second Adam. Jesus is the seed of the woman who fulfills the promise of Genesis 3.15. There are a number of comparisons that we can make, but let me just mention a few what I feel are powerful motifs in this chapter that correlate to Jesus' experience. Adam sinned. Jesus became the sin. Adam worked by the sweat of his brow. Jesus sweat great drops of blood. The earth would bear thorns. Jesus would bear a crown of thorns. Disobedience regarding the tree led to death. Jesus hung on a tree in order to conquer death. I hope you enjoyed this study of Genesis 3, and God bless you.